Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Hey everyone, it's Dave Asprey with Bulletproof Radio. Today's cool fact of the day is that it might sound kind of like science fiction, but it's true that scientists are now able to make direct brain-to-brain connections between people. They've even found a way to transmit brain signals over the internet to control movement of the recipient's hands. Now, that sounds kind of sexy, but in all honesty, it's not that big of a deal. If you wanted to do this at home and you want to do it kind of stupidly, you could get a really simple EEG headset like a Muse or a Melon or one of the other ones like that, and then you could hook it up to an electrical stimulation device on the other end, and every time you had a spike in brainwaves, you could shock someone else and it would make the move. So even though it sounds really sexy, honestly, we could have probably done this over Skype in 2002 if anyone really wanted to. Uh, of all the people I know who might do that, Manish Sethi, my friend who runs Pavlock, would probably do that because he makes a wristband that will shock you to help you change your habits. But hey, that's just kind of cool. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's guest on the show is the founder of the Future Crimes Institute, and he's the chair for policy, law, and ethics at Silicon Valley's Singularity University. You all probably don't know this about me, but I'm actually an adjunct faculty member at Singularity University, amongst all the other weird things that I, I do for fun. Mark has, over the past 20 years, worked with Interpol, the UN Counterterrorism Task Force, NATO. He's been a street police officer, an undercover guy, a counterterrorism guy, and he's worked with a lot of cabinet ministers and heads of governments. He's pretty much uh, an expert on what's coming down the pipeline, and I wanted to talk to him today on the show to get his view on what's happening, not just with biohacking, but with the overall technology landscape and how it's working to affect us. And you may have seen him on CNN or ABC, and this guy's Harvard trained and basically very top of his field with a, a quite unusual background. And Mark and I met at Peter Diamandis' event in Beverly Hills. 
and got to hang out a little bit there. And I was just fascinated by the conversations we had and said, all right, I got to get this, this guy on the show because he just knows stuff that you don't normally hear. And he's also fused this kind of cyber crime technology with futurism, with biology. So you're going to learn some interesting stuff today, things you probably wouldn't even have thought of. And it's just going to be a fun interview. So I've been looking forward to this all week. Uh, Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Dave. It's my pleasure to be here. Now, we're we're in one of those weird conversations where we can talk intelligently about artificial intelligence, big data, cryptocurrencies, synthetic biology, robotics, and digital manufacturing, and bring all that back to biology and human performance. No one else that I've had on the show has ever come close to all this. So our job in the interview today is to make sure that people who are listening to this in their cars don't get lost because you and I are going to easily be able to geek out on some of this stuff. So I want, I'm asking you <laughs> when I'm asking questions that are the wrong question, help bring me back in because I know that I'll be wanting to geek out on this because we share a background in computer security. Um, the people who haven't been listening to Bulletproof Radio for a while also probably don't know that one year ago I left my job in Silicon Valley where I was a vice president of cloud security for one of the largest computer security companies in the world. So I'm very fresh from that industry and I've spent much of my career thinking about this, which is why the risk of us geeking out on cryptocurrencies is probably bigger than you would expect. So we're going to keep this largely about the future of human performance and how all these technologies that you talk about singularity, how they're coming together. And I think that's, that's going to just be an enlightening, fascinating thing. So let's just jump in there. Sure. Biohacking, this idea of controlling our human body, is entirely dependent on technology. And you're making a pretty clear point that technology itself is maybe dangerous. Is, does that make biohacking dangerous? Well, the point that I make is that not that technology itself is actually dangerous, but there's a flip side, and it can be dangerous. So I've just written this book called Future Crimes, where I talk about a lot of these matters. And the point that I try to make very clearly is technology is awesome, right? It can definitely be used for good. As you mentioned, we both know Peter Diamantes. He's written a book called Abundance, another one called Bold. And there he talks about using technology for human good. You know, we'll bring 2 billion people out of poverty in the next decade as a result of technology, access to clean water, more food, radical life extension, uh, reducing mortality. So I'm very pro-technology. But the challenge is, and you've worked in Silicon Valley yourself and you've worked in security, Dave, you know that there's a lot of techno-utopians out there. And there's an ominous flip side to all yeah. of this technology, and those are the things that I cover in future crimes. So for every positive use of technology, it can also be turned another way. Fire was the first technology, right? It could go ahead and keep you warm at night. It could help you cook your food, but you could also use it to burn down the village next door to yours. And so I think we need to consider both the yin and the yang of technology. It's funny that you brought up fire because I was about to say, yeah, fire is the oldest technology and that could be one that either cooks you or cooks your meal. And, and it's a question of how it's applied. So I, like you, I, I'm pro technology because if we're going to master this bag of meat that we walk around in, then it's going to use technology and we can either use it intelligently or we can do things that provide short term convenience, but long term harm to our health and our performance and even the amount of time we'll live. And, and so technology applied intelligently seems like something humans have done since the very first spark was struck from flint or lightning or something else. Absolutely. The only slight challenge today is the rate of change of technology, right? So for how many millennia did man live with fire before they came up with things like the wheel and then the printing press and eventually steam-powered engine electricity? What we're seeing is these eventually inventions, though, are coming much more rapidly and much more quickly thanks to Moore's Law. So, you know, the fact is with Moore's Law, we're seeing this price performance change where computer processing power is doubling every 18 to 24 months, which means that we're living in exponential times, which means that we'll have exponential good and potentially exponential evil right? We're just at that knee of the curve. Most people throughout history, humanity has thought linearly, right? We were sitting out there on the plains of the Serengeti. We would look at the lion a few hundred meters away, and we would make judgments about that. But now in exponential times, 
the human mind is having a bit of a hard time adapting. And to put that in perspective, what the difference between exponential and linear thinking, linearly, if I were to take 30 steps, I'd get across the room, maybe to the door. But if I take 30 steps exponentially, doubling the distance that I travel every step, I actually get from here to the moon. That's the difference between exponential and linear, and that applies definitely for humanity's good, but it also applies to humanity's detriment. That's why in future crimes, when I talk about some of these hacking incidents, it's not just one person being robbed or 10 people being hacked. It's a hundred million people, as we saw with the Target hack, the Sony PlayStation hack, etc. is that crime is scaling and it's scaling exponentially. I, I really like the whole transhuman perspective, which is that, you know, we can fuse humans and technology. And frankly, we've, we've already done it. This little iPhone device here is already fused into your brain. You don't think the way you used to think. Yeah. Are you wearing Google glasses right now? I can't tell. Uh, these are regular glasses, but this makes us cyborgs, right? They, they do. In fact, shoes are another major technology that changed the way we interact with our planet. Right? So all of these are, are subtle technologies, but they're changing linearly. And you're a computer security guy, and so am I. And, and I, I have transhumanist friends who are like, oh my god, I can't wait. I'm going to get something implanted. And I've been working with stick-on technologies from 2003 that, that do things to or monitor the human body. But there's no way anything is going into my body unless I can look at the firmware code and I can look at all of the other code there and I know it has appropriate security stuff in it. And that means nothing's getting inserted in my body unless it's like an artificial heart because I'm gonna die without it, in which case it can and has been hacked. Absolutely. Along those lines, you know, when you talk about that, Peter Diamantis famously on stage uh, went ahead and got an RFID chip implanted in his hand just to see what it would do. And there's guys in the UK that have been doing this for years, using the RFID chip in their hand to unlock doors and identify themselves in the security system. But as you point out, we have an, a problem in that sometimes we need these technologies to stay alive. So there are 300,000 implantable medical devices is installed in the United States alone every year that connect to the internet that in one way or another through Bluetooth, RFID or other technologies are online. Today there are 60,000 pacemakers in the United States that connect to the internet, which means your pacemaker has the equivalent of an IP address so it can talk to the rest of the internet. The good news is your doctor can go ahead and detect an arrhythmia and use the defibrillator to shock your heart. The bad news is when your heart is an IP address, then it's also subjected to denial of service attacks, malware, <laughs> and other types of problems. Oh, and by the way, that punk kid, you know, 17-year-old in his mom's basement next door now has access to your heart too. What that means is that now for the first time in human history, the human body itself is subject to cyber attacks, and we're completely unprepared for that. Uh, we, we are unprepared for that. and. If you look at the history of PC security, I go back to 1990 when I started college, there was no password on my, my I think I was running Windows 3.0 before Windows 3.1, like early, early days. But I'm like, how do I keep people from coming onto my computer and like breaking stuff? And there actually wasn't really a way to do that. And Some might argue there's still not a way to do that. <laughs> exactly. They're still not secure. And then you get to the Internet, and the problem is probably even worse there. And I've spent so much time there. So we have the opportunity right now. But if history is, tells us anything, we probably won't take the opportunity. And this sounds crazy, but I hypothesize that there will actually be a market for medical firewalls. <laughs> there has to be one and medical antivirus software that isn't provided by your, your artificial whatever, artificial limb manufacturer, but someone else is gonna make something to make sure that it's safe so you don't walk around smacking yourself in the head over and over with your electric arm. And like, that's a really scary view of the world. I just don't see how we're gonna kind of prevent that. Do you, do you think 
that we're going to avoid the mistakes of deploying technology that we've made throughout history as we go forward? Not at the pace we're going now, not at the rate that we're going now. I see, unfortunately, that we keep on making the same errors, right? So first we went ahead and we connect, we got computers and then we, and computers got viruses before they were connected to the internet, right? We did, we had viruses when they were freestanding, you know, and they were passed by what they were calling sneaker nets. You would take a five and a quarter inch floppy disk, if anybody remembers those, put it in a computer and you would get a virus. And then we had viruses spread via modems and now via high speed internet. And yet we took all of these new devices, smart devices, mobile phones, tablets, and the like. And we're shocked, shocked that somehow, you know, malware is coming onto them. I mean, the entire thing was entirely predictable. So when you take this out to the next step, you know, we've been talking about implantable medical devices. Uh, in the book, Future Crimes, I talk about wearables, implantables, ingestibles, being hackable. You just gave a great example of, you know, your own arm hitting you in the head. I interviewed for the book a, a friend of mine uh, called Bertolt Meyer, who was born without a left arm and had a replacement bionic limb. And it's one of the most advanced bionic hands in the world. And so I asked him one day, I said, well, tell me, Bertolt, how do you go ahead and control your hand? And he said, well, you know, neurostimulation and the like. I said, but what if you need to fix something? It's like, oh, I have an app on my iPhone. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I said, can I see your iPhone for a second? And it turns out that his bionic arm communicates with the service module via an app on his iPhone and Bluetooth. So he handed me his phone. I looked at the app and I started pushing buttons on his phone and his hand started moving. So I was now in control of his bionic arm. And of course, I didn't need to have his phone because it used Bluetooth technology, a, a wireless protocol that's eminently hackable and has been hacked, you know, dozens and dozens of times. I could just hack his arm myself. So I definitely think, you know, we talk about some of the downsides and I'm sure we'll get into the risks. But from a business and entrepreneur's perspective, there will be tremendous opportunities. You know, we had the Symantec's and the McAfee's and the Trend Micros in the past. There will be new versions of all of those for the Internet of Things and the billions and billions of new devices we're about to connect and put online. And it, it's all going to use technologies that are kind of foreign to most people, artificial intelligence, machine learning, event correlation, um, stuff that we started to run the Internet. But scaling the Internet was a lot of work. You know, Google's first servers were at the company where I, I made like six million dollars. I was 26 that I lost when I was 28. But, you know, and watching and, and building uh, like I've, I've personally worked on more than 100 sites that scaled just dramatically like that. And I look at, at that and that's nothing. It's, it's almost meaningless compared to what you're doing when you want to have a billion smartphones all talking at the same time uh, to your application. Yeah, sorry. This is something I mentioned in Future Crimes is that people look around the technology that we have in our lives today and they think, wow, we're so technologically advanced. You know, I've got computers and smartphones and iPads. What they don't realize, most folks, is that we are at the first minutes of the first hour of the first days of the internet revolution. This will be a little bit of that geeky stuff you were talking about, but today the internet uses a protocol to communicate, to route our traffic. So the same way you punch in a phone number, uh, you know, to the 212 area code, you connect to New York, the internet has its own addressing system and it's called internet protocol version four. That can tolerate about four and a half billion simultaneous connections on the net. But many years ago, we ran out of space with IPv4, which means that we had to upgrade to a new protocol called Internet Protocol version 6. It's like New York City's area code being split between 212-917-347. What people don't understand about Internet Protocol version 6 is that that allows us to grow from 4.5 billion simultaneous connections to 78 octillion. Now, I didn't know what the hell an octillion was. I had to look it up, and it turns out it's 78 billion, billion, billion simultaneous connections that will become possible in just the next few years. To put that metaphorically in ways that people can understand, that means that today's Internet is metaphorically the size of a golf ball. Tomorrow's will be the size of the sun. That's how big our Internet is going to grow, which means that every physical object in our world, pets, pets, plates, cars, elevators, electric pumps, 
they're all going online. Mark Andreessen famously said, software is eating the world, right? Every physical object will have an IP address, will be connected via RFID, Bluetooth, near field communication. We can't even protect this stuff that we have today. Cisco has predicted that we're going to add 50 billion new devices to the internet by 2020. And Intel is even more optimistic. They said we're going to add 200 billion devices to the internet. There's only about six, seven, eight billion people on the planet, you know, in, around these times. So that means there's going to be, you know, many, many more objects online than there are people. And it's all going to be hackable. My joke about the Internet of Things is that the Internet of Things is just the Internet of Things to be hacked. It's more crap for <laughs> hackers to hack. Uh, I used to have a T-shirt that said, uh, my other machine is your Linux box, uh, which if you're in computers, you know, that is basically it's like my other computer is your computer. And it, it's, it's actually like that. So with all these devices out there, uh, when, when you think about it, you're probably saying, well, my phone is probably safe, but actually it probably isn't that safe. And if you're saying my PC is that safe, it probably isn't. But okay, so so this is something that, that we just live with all the time. But here's the fact: stuff still works, right? Your bank account's still there most of the time. If it goes away, you'll probably get it back, unless you're a small business in the U.S., in which case you're pretty much out of business. Oops. So it gets to be weirder and weirder, though, as you start thinking about you know an eyeball implant. Like if you get malware in your eye that shows ads all the time and you can't turn it off and it's in your eye and you can't just take your eye out with a fork, like what's going to happen? And, you know, I don't want stuff in my eyes for that reason, but. <laughs> By the way, we'll see. I can, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. It depends on what level eyeball package you got from the factory. So if you get the bronze level, then, you know, you have to see the ads. But if you buy the platinum package, you can turn off the ads. AT&T is doing this right now with their, you know, giga speed internet. If you go ahead and pay $30 more a month, AT&T won't monitor all of the traffic leaving your machine. Okay, well, 30 bucks is a lot of money to, for your own privacy. If you don't, if you want privacy, you have to pay 30 bucks more. If not, AT&T will be, you know, snooping on all of your traffic. You brought up a really great point, Dave, which is the idea of, well, our computers probably are hacked and our cell phones probably are hacked and it seems to work okay. The challenge with the cyber threat, and this is why it's so hard for most people to grasp, even government officials, Folks, folks that work in law enforcement and other types of security, is that it's mostly an invisible threat. At least it has been up until now. If your car is stolen out of your garage when you wake up in the morning, you go there and you see no car. You know that you have a problem. The challenge with the cyber threat, when bad guys, whether they be, you know, hackers, hacktivists, foreign governments, terrorists, whatever it may be, when they're breaking into your electronic devices, you don't see them there. The threat is invisible, so it's easy to ignore. The way I try to liken it, and this may resonate well with you, Dave, it's kind of like microbes, right? 200 years ago, people had no concept of bacteria and viruses, fungi, that they could make you sick because they were invisible. Then we had microscopes. We could see these things and draw conclusions. We don't have really great microscopes for the cyber threats that we see today. And therefore, most people are already hacked. The FBI director, uh, Mueller, famously said, there's only two types of computers, or there's only two types of companies, those that know they've been hacked and those that have been hacked and don't know it yet. Yeah, I stand by that as well, having spent a lot of time in, in that field, and, and you do as well. So you can all say, oh, no, time for alarm, and I'm going to unplug my computer. And Yeah, don't use the Internet. Way too dangerous. Unplug. No, that's a joke, obviously. <laughs> well, it, it, it gets a little bit scarier. So, okay, let's say someone can you know, see your nudie pictures or what, whatever you're most concerned about. Maybe they got your banking info. They probably won't use it even if they did. And if so, we have fraud protection and artificial intelligence algorithms to help with that. And it functions exactly like your immune system. When you look at a billion devices that are all even half-ass programmed to work with each other, it's the same thing as, look, here's a stimulus, here's an, an immune response. Unfortunately, sometimes your immune response kills you. And what we want to do is build the system of devices that doesn't have an immune response so extreme that it messes with us. But if you're sitting in your car and you're listening to this, you're like, okay, this is all cool sci-fi stuff, but why do I care about? So why do I care about this stuff? Let's talk about what happens with 3D printed food. If, if people haven't heard about 3D printed food, by the way, I wouldn't go so far as call it food. I'm not eating that crap. 
and, and I'll say that as a, you know, you guys have read the Bulletproof Diet book, and if not, you need to go buy it and read it. <laughs> but I don't think that we are anywhere close in the next, I'll, I'll go so far as say 40 years of printing food that is the biological equivalent of what comes out of the soil, and I'm not sure we'll ever be able to do that. That said, a lot of the stuff that comes out of our soil is barely food anyway because of the way we've treated our soil, so maybe I'm a bit of a perfectionist there. But let's say that you're printing your food, or more likely printing your, your supplements or your drugs. We, we will get there much faster to print a single molecule. Yeah, with chem printers, so you want a specific type of smart drug. Okay, if somebody jacks that system, and they just happen to add a little bit of extra cyanide to that, you can die. And what if it's something in your air filter? Like there are things that are gonna change the environment around you that you're not aware of that, oh, and like let's talk about electric drive cars, you know, the cars that drive themselves. Hack one of those and send your enemy into a, a bridge or off a bridge at you know 70 miles an hour. This kind of stuff is going to happen. So this is why we all can pay attention to it. But what what action do we take? And Mark, that's my question for you. Okay, so the world is scarier. It's getting it's scary. It's getting scarier. So what do I do <laughs> about this other than live in a cave? Yeah, don't live in a cave. I think that you can enjoy all the bounty that technology has to offer. To some of the examples that you talked about, whether it be you know, hacking 3D printers or, uh, you know, various ventilation systems. That's Unfortunately, we are going to have that problem because it's all online, right? If you think about the Stuxnet attack that took place in Iran against their so-called peaceful nuclear power plant, the government, a government, believed widely to be the United States, was able to insert a virus into their uh, industrial control systems that sabotaged it so they couldn't refine uranium to make nuclear weapons. So when everything's online, everything is hackable. What I said in future crimes is that our threat surface area is growing. There are certain more places to attack you because more things are going online. To your specific point, there are lots of things that we can do. The last two chapters of Future Crimes are focused on solutions. So there are tactical solutions of things that we can do as a society from a technology perspective, a public policy perspective, a legal perspective, uh, and then an individual perspective. And then chapter 18 is broadly aspirational. Some of the great things that we can do to solve this problem. I'll talk at the social level first, and then we can talk about individually what people can do to protect themselves. As overwhelming as this may seem, I always like to remind people, President Kennedy in the 1960s boldly said, by the end of this decade, we will put a man on the moon. And we did that, right? I mean, just a few millennia ago, we were apes, basically. And then we evolved to the point where we could put, you know, man on the moon. That's crazy. If we could put a man on the moon, surely we can solve our cybersecurity threats. The point is it's going to take intention. It's going to take grand thinking. In future times, I call for a Manhattan Project for cybersecurity. President Obama you know, was commenting recently on the Sony hack, and he said, I'm going to unveil some really big plans in my State of the Union address. And so I listened very intently to what he said, and the State of the Union address was 6,600 words, of which 108 were on cybersecurity of 6,600. And what he called for was better information sharing and enhanced penalties for identity thieves. If you think that taking an identity thief and locking them up for two, you know, six years versus two years is going to solve the fundamental technological problem of our techno insecurity, you're badly missing the boat. I wrote in an op-ed, and this is not partisan. I'm not picking on the president. I know he's got a lot of things on his plate. But what I wrote in the book is, you know, saying that enhanced penalties for identity thieves will solve the cybersecurity threat is like putting on sunscreen and saying it will protect you from a nuclear meltdown, right? It's wholly inadequate to the scale and scope of the problem. It's a good thing we have jurisdiction over people in Nigeria because only Americans are identity thieves. Like, like it, it's a global problem and you cannot fix it with law and penalties. It, exactly. I say in the book, we'll never arrest our way out of this problem. And so one of the things I call for, and you mentioned it yourself, is kind of an immune system response, right? There's so much that we can learn from the field of epidemiology, applying principles of public health to the cyber threat. Because that cop in Victoria can't arrest somebody in New York and a cop in New York can't arrest somebody in Moscow due to international law, we'll never solve the problem by arresting people or passing laws. It might make differences at the margin, but we need a more fundamental 
public health approach. I call for the creation of a World Health Organization for cyber or a CDC for cyber is one of the many steps that we can take along those lines. What is, in fact, I, I would bet certainly that what will happen is that we'll map out what we know about human and biological immunity. And what's cool is there's cellular level things that happen without any interaction from your central nervous system or your gut or your brain. So there's basically multiple levels of your immune system stack. And most computer security today, there might be a little thing here, but we try to centralize everything so we can look at it. It doesn't work as you scale bigger and bigger. Just like if everything in your immune system had to go up to your brain to look at it, you could never do it. So we will evolve naturally. I, I believe the human is very well evolved and just all animals are. We will evolve a big internet of things that works almost identically to the way our immune systems work, which work pretty well most of the time. But all right, uh, let's, let's talk though. Right, you're driving in your car, you're sitting here going, all right, now I'm a little more concerned about this. I didn't really pay much attention, but what is the action that I can take now that is going to either make me safer, make me perform better? Like, like okay, I'm aware of a new threat. You just raised my cortisol levels. My heart rate variability is off a little bit. Like I, I'm not feeling calm anymore, but I'm not feeling empowered either. So it's so like, like, what's the personal step you can take now? Well, that's the great news about future crimes is in addition to those last two chapters at the end, I actually have included an appendix of some very definite steps that people can take. Just to put your audience at ease, if they are feeling those higher cortisol levels, what I would say is, look, there's no such thing as perfect security, right? You can get up in the morning, think everything's great, and step out in front of a bus, right? So we never know what's going to happen, and we cannot be paralyzed by fear. But we do need to be informed. We know how security works in the physical world, right? You leave your house, you lock your front door, you know, you take basic steps to protect yourself. But we don't really understand what those steps look like in cyberspace. I tell the story in Future Crimes of a BMW. If you take a BMW and park it in a dangerous part of town where there's no light, you leave the keys in the ignition, the engine on, the windows down, and $5,000 cash on the dashboard, you shouldn't be surprised when your car is stolen, right? Conversely, you can take a beautiful BMW, park it in a great neighborhood, well-lighted, put a club on the steering wheel, use LoJack to locate it, and you've taken every possible step you can to protect your car. And somebody can still come by with a tow truck and take it, right? So there's no such thing as perfect security, which should give people solace. We're not looking for perfect security. All I'm trying to do is teach people the equivalent of how to lock their front doors and how not to leave their keys in their cars in cyberspace. So these are the six tips. These are the six tips that I tell people. I've created something called the update protocol, U-P-D-A-T-E, where each letter of the word update stands for a step that they can take. And I'm happy to go through them if you like. Yeah, let's do it pretty fast. Okay, U is update your software, right? We've all seen those pop-ups that say, oh, your browser needs to be updated, your phone software needs to be updated. That's a very polite way of saying your phone was full of security bugs that we've just discovered, and now we need to plug those until the next time when we discover more security bugs. So don't do that manually. You can set on your phone, on your browser, on your OS for your computer, all of that to take place automatically. Set that to happen and you'll cut your threats. By the way, I should say with the update protocol, this has been tested by the Australian Ministry of Defense. And if you follow these six simple steps, you can reduce your cyber threat risk level by 85%, okay, which is really great. U, P, is for passwords. We all hate passwords. We know that they suck. They have to be 50 digits long, uppercase, lowercase, very hard to manage. I tell everybody and recommend that they use a password manager or a password wallet. Simple, can come up with great passwords. You never have to worry about remembering them, just a master password. I recommend three or four companies, believe it or not, organized crime groups have actually created their own password managers in the app store <laughs> to try to trick you so your passwords go to them. So use ones from Dashlane, one password, the number one password, KeyPass, and LastPass, and those will help protect you. And by the way, if you use a password on your iPhone or your latest version, Android, it automatically encrypts all your data, which is great. D is for download, UPD. 
Watch what you download and where you download. If you're downloading stuff from torrent sites, if you're using third-party folks to go ahead and give you free versions of Microsoft Office, you shouldn't be surprised if they're riddled with bugs and infect you. So download from sites that you know and are, are well vetted. A, this is a tip that I see very few folks talk about, and I think it's key. A stands for administrator. Don't run your own box in admin mode. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. When you get a brand new laptop and take it home, whether it be from Microsoft or Apple, and turn it on, you create a user account. That user account, by necessity, needs, if you just have one account, to be able to control all the functions on your computer, even at the very low technical levels. That's called administrator mode. If you're running your computer in administrator mode, you're logged in, you're surfing the Internet, doing all that fun stuff, if you click on the wrong link or click on the wrong document to open up a download attachment, then you will have malware, you know, viruses, Trojans, and the like, execute on your machine. Those Trojans and viruses can run because you're logged in as admin. They have full permission to do whatever it is they want. Instead, I tell people to use their day-to-day -day computer in a user mode. So switch the account permission and make yourself a user. This way, if you're cruising the internet and accidentally open a download that's infected, that wants to infect your machine, the system files, it will prompt you to enter your system administrator password. If that PDF you got from your sister-in-law is asking you know, for admin permission to open a PDF, that's your clue that there's malware in it. Okay, U-P-D-A-T. Turn off your computer. We leave our computers on 24-7. If you just turned off your computer or at least turned off the Wi-Fi for the eight hours that you slept every day, you'd cut your risk by 33%. And the same is true for your mobile devices. Most people walk around with their Wi-Fi on, their Bluetooth on, near-field communication, all these ports that needn't be open, GPS, right? Turn on those services when you need them because each additional service that you keep up and running is a way for bad guys to get into your device and hack you. U-P-D-A-T-E. And the last E is for encryption. You can go ahead and encrypt your hard drive, full disk encryption. What does that mean? Basically use this big map to scramble all of the data on your computer so they cannot be read by an unauthorized third party. In Mac, it's called File Vault, and on the Windows side, it's called Bitdefender. They're built in for free. Use them. That will protect your data at rest. The same for your data in transit. If you're sitting in an airport lounge, a Starbucks, any public Wi-Fi place such as a university, I can see everybody else's traffic on the network. That means I can see what you're surfing, I can see your iTunes account, your playlist, etc. Use a VPN, a virtual private network. There are lots of companies out there that you can use, and that will protect your traffic as it transits the internet. And if you follow that update protocol, you will reduce your cyber risk by 85%. Uh, what's your favorite um, proxy software that people should think about for Windows and for Mac? I use uh, several of them, but one that I like quite a bit is called uh, Ytopia. That's a very good one that you can use. There are other ones that are come out from F-Secure, which you can use, and Semantic Norton, they make them as well. But again, the trick is to make sure you're doing it from a qualified vendor um, that you know and trust, and you're downloading it from a place you know and trust. Awesome. So none of these are necessarily human performance, except uh, if your computer is hacked and, and things like that happen, it sort of does mess up oh, at least a month. Uh, I've had lots of friends with identity theft problems, and, and it, it's a problem. Well, let's, let's shift gears a bit, and let's talk about the Silk Road trial. Yes. Why should people listening to this who are predominantly interested in you know, how can I feel better, perform better, think better, things like that, why does the Silk Road trial matter to them? And, and just kind of walk us through what is Silk Road? Why should people care? Because some people don't know what Silk Road is. Sure. I, I just want to go back to the concept of human performance because I might suggest boldly, if I can, that this is all sort of tied to human performance in a lot of different ways. Uh, in the book, Future Crimes, I talk about uh, hacking wearables. I talk about the privacy implications 
bit. Um, you know, the, some people's sexual histories have leaked out as a result of what they were logging on their Fitbit account. So there's lots of privacy issues. It's human performance. If you have particular medical conditions, uh, we just had the hack of Anthem Blue Cross, 80 million unencrypted patient records, you know, leaked onto the internet because they did not encrypt that data. So I think there is a connection between human performance and, and how this can affect your life uh, in that regard. There's also a bigger and, and maybe more interesting thing. The more of this data is leaked, the more you realize that everyone else is probably as screwed up as you are. So we, we all spend an enormous amount of time creating like psychological firewalls. We're like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to think about that. And maybe uh, 10 or so years ago, I, I used to have modafinil in my, uh, in my LinkedIn profile. Uh, I just put the word there, which is a really powerful smart drug that I was taking that no one was really talking about. And most people, and I put yoga and meditation in there too. And people now do that a lot, but back then it was just only strictly for business. And people, some of them would just look at me and not really know what it was. And other people would be like, oh, you're using it too? But it's, it's like having a venereal disease or something like no one talks about it. But then when you get you get it out there like we did with AIDS awareness, it happens. So I think when 80 million medical records are leaked or when you know you figure out like things like uh, 50 shades of gray, like why is that some crazy box office success and all? Probably because people do a lot of stuff that they don't tell other people. But as this tech comes out there, privacy is eroding. When privacy erodes, we'll actually know more about actual human behavior versus reported human behavior. Because what you tell your doctor and what you actually do may not actually match. And, and so eventually we'll know more about the state of the human condition than we ever did potentially through these security flaws. That's kind of funny. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the upside. Uh, Tim Cook just the other day at Apple gave a very uh, uh, impassioned speech for privacy. He was actually at the cyber summit with President Obama, and they were talking, you know, the FBI has said to uh, Apple, we don't like the encryption that you're using on your iPhone. It's too strong. So please give us the secret keys. And Apple's basically said, no, we're not going to do that. And Tim Cook said, hey, as a gay man who grew up in Alabama, I can tell you that there are consequences of lacks of privacy, right? So in certain regimes, in certain countries, if you're the wrong religion or the wrong sexual orientation or the wrong political party, then there are actually can be threats against your life as a result of it. So um, while there are definitely upshots to, you know, increased uh, openness and sharing of information, there can be downsides under the wrong circumstances. Um, this is exactly why I've created uh, online profiles for me on every bizarre site I can think of and why I do Google search queries for random words because try and figure out which ones are real. I'm kidding. But th there is something to be said around, uh, around creating dirty data about yourself. Like I, I might have put my wrong birth date out there thousands of times. So if you wanted to find my actual birthday, it's probably a little bit more work than it should be, which also reduces my threat footprint. So I have a friend who changes his Facebook birthday monthly. And he's constantly getting happy birthday wishes from all of his friends. And eventually they figure out, it's like, wait a minute, wasn't it your birthday last month too? So yeah, he changes it once a month. That's awesome. I've even gone so far uh, back in the day, not really for security, but I've changed my race. There's actually forms you can fill out at your university, go to the office, say, I've decided to change my race today. And they have to have a form for that. So you can be a different race every month if you want, uh, which is, is kind of funny, actually. So uh, spreading a little bit of dirty data about yourself is, is quite intriguing in this world where we don't have as much privacy. So, so let's... Silk Road. Yeah, let's talk more about Silk Road. So first, what was Silk Road or what is Silk Road? And why should people listening to this care about both what they did and what happened to them? So the Silk Road was considered to be the world's largest online drug marketplace. It operated in what was called the deep web or the dark web, which means that it wasn't a part of the surface web, the Google part of the web. Most people think, oh, I'm on the internet. I can see everything because I have access to Google and Facebook and Amazon and you know Angry Birds and all that stuff. I'm on the internet. <laughs> what they don't realize is, is that they're only playing on the surface web. The deep web is actually 500 times larger than the surface web. And what do I mean by deep web? I mean those parts of the internet that you cannot access either without a secret password or code or some sort of specialized software. So companies like LexisNexis, all of those data that they have behind firewalls are not Googleable per se. So the surface internet, you know, the bits that we know about is only 19 terabytes, but it turns out the deep web is estimated according to a study in nature to be 7,500 terabytes. To put that in 
further perspective, when you Google something, Google is only searching the six, they only index 16%. Google only indexes 16% of the surface web and 0% of the deep web. That means if you're looking for something on Google, you're actually only searching for 0.03% of the available information on our planet. So people need to understand the difference between the two. Um, there are lots of good, completely legitimate things in the deep web. To access other parts of it, you require specialized software. And the most common type is called Tor, which stands for the Onion Router. It's free. You can download it uh, online. It was actually created by the U.S. government, the Department of the Navy Research, for the following reason. For democracy and human rights activists overseas living in countries like Iran, Syria, China, in order to help them get access to the true World Wide Web and subvert national firewalls, the Navy created this software, the Onion Browser, Onion Router, uh, or Tor, so that people could bypass that. Well, as is often the case, criminals find use for good and interesting tools. And while much of the traffic that takes place on Tor today is completely legitimate, there is a very large subsection of it that's criminal in nature, particularly what in what are called Tor hidden services. This is the, the dark web, not the, just the deep web, but the dark web. And here you can buy any type of narcotic you want, firearms, child pornography, fake passports, driver's license, credit cards, Facebook logins, explosives, whatever you want. In Future Crimes, I have two or three chapters dedicated to the dark web and showing what's available for sale there. Back to the Silk Road. The Silk Road, I would, would have said, was allegedly created by a guy called Ross Ulbricht. But now Mr. Ulbricht has been convicted of this crime. He ran according to the federal government, and now having been convicted of this crime, a drug marketplace known as the Silk Road, which was a play on the original Silk Road. And he was a libertarian, 27-year-old kid, grew up in Texas. He was an Eagle Scout. He had a master's, I believe it was in physics, from Carnegie Mellon University. Looked like a great kid, but he had this side business. The government alleged uh, at his trial that $1.2 billion dollars of drug and other illicit sales took place on the Silk Road in just two and a half years. And because they used sort of an eBay style system where the house got a cut of everything that was sold on the site, it was alleged that his personal take was $110 million, which is a great startup, right? For all you entrepreneurs out there, go ahead, launch a company two and a half years later, uh, walk away with over 100 million bucks. Sounds like a great exit. Except for the life imprisonment part. That part's not so good. And so that's some of the challenges that he faces. Uh, not only was he accused of selling drugs, which depending on how you feel about drugs is good or bad, um, but the bigger challenge is that he had several employees and several system administrators. And one of those system administrators was accused of stealing money from Ross Ulbricht, who used the pen name Dread Pirate Roberts. That's what he called himself on the site. So when he found out that one of his employees was stealing, one of the other things you could get on the Silk Road was a hitman. So you could hire the services of a hitman, pay him Bitcoin, and they would take care of the deed for you. Ross Ulbricht has been convicted of hiring a hitman, paying him $40,000 in Bitcoin up front to carry out the hit. And then he demanded proof of the dead body after the fact. So he paid in Bitcoin 40,000 bucks, contracted with the hitman. The hitman killed the system administrator, sent back photographs of the hit, and then Ross Ulbricht wired the, or sent the additional $40,000 in Bitcoin. What was fascinating about that is the conversation that Ulbricht had with the hitman. He said, you know, I really didn't want to kill this guy, but he stole from me. I had no choice. And then he complained, the problem with people today is that they just don't have any integrity. So he hired a hitman to kill his employee and complain about the hitman or about the employee's integrity. What Ross didn't know and ultimately led to his downfall is that that hitman actually was an undercover FBI agent. By the time all of this was going down, the FBI was on to him. They used a variety of technical means to get access to what he was doing. And so he, that cop, the person that he thought was a hitman was an undercover agent. How did they get the photos of the dead employee? The FBI knocked on the employee's door and said, hi, your boss has just put out a con. May we come in? 
Of course, they let him in and they actually called up makeup artists from Hollywood that put blood and, you know, guts all over the place to fake the photo. That's what they sent to Ross Ulbricht and to convince him that the hit had taken place. So something to note here, this guy was doing a billion dollars in illegal transactions and he might have had a few little bits of security there. And look who walked through his security measures to look at the private communications that he was having over the dark web using conceivably every kind of encryption he could find. That's why you should probably know that your system isn't very secure. <laughs> like like if, if they can do that to him, they can do it to you. But, but there's there's a broader question here. And, and having spent a lot of time in, in tech and, and on personal development and things like that, Building a world where people don't want to kill you and steal your stuff is the best defense you can ever have. And in other words, don't make a lot of enemies. Don't be a target. And if we can do things that help people move out of that, I have to kill my employees mode. And, and if it's something as simple as feed them properly or give them access to neurofeedback technology that like lets them see when their brains are doing this. We could do things like turn down the incidence of terrorism. Like there, there are some countries where there aren't huge numbers of terrorist attacks because, well, really, like who hates Canadians? <laughs> Stuff like that. So there are, are policy level things and there's also very individual things you can do that also lower your threat footprint, whether it's from a societal perspective or just from a personal perspective. And one perspective is, you know, I put thorn bushes around all my windows. I got bars on the doors, unpickable locks and an alarm system and, you know, guns and, and all that kind of stuff. And the other perspective is like all my neighbors love me and they all watch out for me because I, because I'm good to them and they're good to me. And we have an intact community. And both of those are very good threat defense strategies. And I feel like the whole firewall perspective, the whole national security perspective, all of that, even down to personal security, has come down to this, like, you know, me versus the world thing. But it's actually a little bit more complex than that, and that, that there's certain behaviors you can take that invisibly lower your risk, and they're different than your update style behaviors. It, is there a technology angle to help create a world where people just want to blow each other up less? Right. Well, first, let me echo your sentiments. I mean, I would love that world. I think it would be awesome uh, if we could drive towards that. And you're right, there's some really fascinating research going on in neuroscience. Uh, David Eagleman, uh, who was one of the gentlemen who was kind enough to offer a review and blurb of future crimes, talks about that. And I would encourage people to check out his work because he's thinking about the relationship between neuroscience and crime. Very that's, that's David Eagleman, everyone. Uh, yeah, he's written like 10 books. Um, he and I talk once a month. He's a great guy. Yeah, definitely check he's out his awesome. work. And just, just a great human being, too, so I recommend checking him out. Yes, there may be less terrorism in Canada, but, you know, you also have shootings at Parliament in Ottawa, too. So there is no place that's kind of immune from this. And I think what you're getting at is kind of what are the fundamental causes of crime? That is an area of research which is beyond my own expertise. I don't focus on that. Some people allege that it's poverty, right? If we solve poverty, then people wouldn't steal. I don't think it's quite that simple for no other reason than human psychology, right? There are people who face deep, profound psychological problems, serial killers and people like that. So that's, that's not just because of poverty. There's domestic violence, which is not just because of poverty. There's substance abuse and addiction, which is not just due to poverty. So um, I think making the world a happier place is awesome. Countries like Bhutan talk about, you know, a gross happiness index or something, which I think gross is national happiness, right? Yeah, gross national happiness, which I think is a wonderful metric. We should absolutely be doing that. And I, too, don't want to live in a world where we're living in the security state, right? Going through TSA airport, you know, anywhere in the United States and, and even in the UK, I would point out, is really unpleasant, right? You know, signs everywhere. If you see something, say something. You know, you see police officers walking around with automatic weapons. It's very different from sort of the life and lifestyle that I think most of us would aspire to. So I fully support that. And I think we could use technologies to get towards that happier place. So here's a, just a short little UK security story. Uh, I was there, I, I used to commute to Cambridge uh, in England from, uh, from the West Coast in the US uh, every month uh, for a while. So I had a lot of time out there and, and one time, I decided I'd, I'd take the tube across London, and 
I am sensitive to environmental mold because it's grown in my house. That the tube there is super moldy. And I walked down this like water drenched subway tunnel and I started like seeing colors. I, I didn't quite know what was going on, but I was feeling like my reality kind of narrowed to a window. I was, it was actually having brain inflammation and it, it, now that I understand what's going on. But I was like, okay, I need to get out of this place. And I'm wearing my backpack. You know, I like, kind of look like a tourist, but I'm also a 6'4 fit guy. Uh, and I'm, I'm like, okay, so I'm like running, holding my breath because I don't want to breathe. And then I hear this, this voice kind of floating out of nowhere. Would the gentleman charging the escalators uh, please stop because if you run in there, then that means there might be a bomb and you might have a mass panic. And I'm just like, I'm holding my breath and I'm running because I don't want to breathe any more of this crap because like I, I was really unwell from that. And the only thought that I had enough mental energy for it was how would you charge an escalator? Like, is this a credit card transaction? Uh, because I, I was holding my breath. I was out of oxygen and, and I got out of there. But the fact that there were people watching me on camera jog up an escalator and that they went on the overhead to, like... That means everyone there is getting stared at by someone going, is that guy dangerous? Is that guy dangerous? Is that guy dangerous? And maybe that makes you feel safe. Um, but I would like to be in more of a world where we just feel safe because we know if there's someone doing something bad, everyone near them is going to look at them and either shame them or smack them. Um, that's crowd-based. That's another thing I mentioned in Future Crimes, by the way, is the whole concept of crowdsourcing our security. So right now we delegate both personal and even national security to the government. But there's a tremendous opportunity to use the power of crowdsourcing for good, where individuals are working together to protect their community. I cite examples of individual Mexican citizens going up against the narcos down there using crowdsourcing techniques, open source uh, crowd mapping like on Google Maps to do uh, incredible uh, good stuff uh, as well. Uh, I, th I think we're going to see a lot more of that on the, the more positive side of what all this connectedness means. It, we'll have better data. And that means you can take action on the data, even if it's a small action. You know, a billion small actions can equal some really big stuff, even if it's not quite apparent how it, how it really came about. Well, on, on that note, we're coming up on the end of the show, Mark. And uh, your Future Crimes book is, is very thought-provoking. And I agree with uh, the vast majority of the things that, that you've put in it uh, because uh, they, they make sense and they match my background as a technologist and, and a future-focused person. Uh, but there's a question that maybe isn't as future crimes oriented, and it's given all the things that you've learned in your career, which is pretty interesting between the law enforcement and the Harvard education and just the, the things you've seen and the world leaders you've worked with, what are the three most important recommendations you have for people who want to perform better at whatever it is they do? Oh, that's a great question. I guess the things that I've learned over the years would be be present, right? It's so easy to get lost in either the past or the future. I would say just be present in what's going on around you. I would say be aware. It's amazing to me how many people, you know, you talked about a crazy scene in the tube a moment or two ago, how many people are rushing on, you know, reading their iPhone, crossing traffic in Manhattan and things like that. Maintain situational awareness of what's going on with you. And then the third thing I would say is listen to yourself, right? If you can calm your body and your mind for a moment, get the feedback from your own body because it, it will tell you things, right? That backache that you have, that headache that you have, there may be something on there. That sense of fear that you have, right? Human beings are actually quite good at subtly detecting fear and danger. Like listen to those voices. And I think those three things would be the tips that I would offer. Beautiful. Well, thank you for offering those. And your book is called Future Crimes. And can you, uh, can you tell everyone URLs where they should go to learn more about your work? Sure, absolutely. You can find Future Crimes on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and the like, and I'll be happy to share a link with your audience. They can also go to futurecrimes.com where they'll see the book. There's also a really cool uh, film-style trailer that the publisher created about the book, and I personally am on markgoodman.net, and people can find me there if they want to get in touch for any reason. Oh, and Twitter. I should say on Twitter, I'm at Future Crimes. Awesome. Well, Mark, you, you've done a, a great amount of thinking and, and you've presented, a, a, I'd say, a very balanced view of the future where technology is absolutely going to do things for us that, that most people are, have not thought about. And you've done the thinking uh, and you've also looked at the positive and the negative without going too far in either direction. So I, I appreciate that about your work. And thanks for coming on Bulletproof Radio. Well, thank you, Dave. It was a pleasure to be here. If you enjoyed today's episode, 
I would appreciate it if you went and you checked out Mark's work. Just go out there and look at future crimes and see if it's the kind of thing that's interesting to you. Maybe you'll learn something. And I'd also appreciate it if you went out and you checked out the Bulletproof Diet book because I'm still working on sales. I'm working on the next book and then the book after that. And when people buy more Bulletproof copies in the first few months, it helps me go to the publishers and say, hey guys, we need to make this next book really rock. So I would appreciate it if you supported this podcast by going out and checking out the work of guests like Mark Goodman, as well as supporting my work. Thank you so much for listening. Have an awesome day. One of the things that makes you most bulletproof is the ability to focus. I don't mean focus for a minute or a few seconds. I mean focus for as much time as you need to focus to get the job done. For that, I've trained myself using the upgraded Focus Brain Trainer. The video game on your computer shows you when more blood is in the front of your brain or less blood is in the front of your brain. By teaching yourself to consciously move blood to the front of your brain, you can teach yourself to focus effortlessly for long periods of time. I've used this technology extensively myself, and I used it with some of my executive coaching clients in order to help high-performance people become even more higher performance. It's called the Upgraded Focus Brain Trainer, and it's available on UpgradedSelf.com. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.